Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S., and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. We welcome you back to Now Appalachia, the podcast that is heard and carried across the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us as we continue to bring the outstanding uh, authors, publishers, and editors with connections to Appalachia. And we talk about their work, their books, their process, everything involved with bringing a story to life and how the Appalachian region influences and impacts their works. And I'm delighted to have uh, author Andy Davidson with us today. He's a Bram Stoker Award-nominated author, and we're going to be talking to him about his latest book, which is a mix of horror, it's a mix of suspense, it's a mix of thriller, everything kind of uh, mixed into one and pulled together into one story. And the title of his new book is called The Hollow Kind. And as we mentioned, in addition in addition to Andy being the Bram Stoker Award-nominated author, uh, he was nominated for that book for the title the uh, In the Valley of the Sun. He's also the author of The Boatman's Daughter, which was listed among NPR's Best Books of 2020, the New York Public Library's Best Adult Books of the Year, as well as Library Journal's Best Horror Book of 2020. He was born and raised in Arkansas, and he makes his home now in Georgia with his wife and a bunch of cats, which is always nice. And they end up being the perfect supervisor for any kind of writing project that an author undertakes. And so, Andy, welcome to Now Appalachia. It's great to have you here today. Thanks for having me, Elliot. It's good to be here. I'm really excited to to have you here to talk to you about this book. Um, it was a book that really grabbed me really from the first page, and I just could not put it down until it was over. And I knew when I read it that I had to have you on to talk about it because it, it's so unique. It, it's so Appalachian and Southern, and it's just got so many great things to talk about. But I want to ask you first about kind of the the main thrust of the story and how the story is structured. The book is around 400 pages, but you've got sort of two timelines that kind of span the course of the book. One of them is set uh, in the late uh, 1980s, around 1988, and then there is some story that is told back uh, in 1917 towards the late 19-teens, early 1920s. And one of the things I loved about those dual timelines is even though we kind of went back and forth and got... uh, uh, snippets of what was going on with the characters and the family in both of those timelines, the pacing of the story was so good. I just loved how we uh, spent some time in certain areas of the story. And just when we had spent enough time, you moved us on to uh, another location, another setting, another piece of the story within that chapter. Can you talk a little bit about, about pacing and, and how you structured that given these two timelines? And is that something difficult to manage as an author when you are dealing with two timelines, you know, 70 years apart and another generation of a family in present day? How did you bring all that together? And how did you keep the pacing moving forward given that you had those two timelines? Well, one of the things that I told myself when I finished this book was that I would never do this again because it, it was incredibly <laughs> difficult to do. Um, I'm not by nature uh, a writer of historical fiction. And so when I approached uh, the historical aspect of this book, um, I originally conceived of the book divided in a different way than it actually is in its present form. Um, there were large chunks of the book set in 1989 
and then there were large chunks set in the past. And I had them much more divided as in a kind of part one, part two, or book one, book two sort of feel. Um, and my editor, late in the editing process, I think, said that the the pacing was not quite page turny enough, you know, uh, which which is kind of a balance you always want to strike, I think, as a writer, like especially if you're someone that is trying to write quote unquote literary fiction. Um, you also, I at least want to have uh, a very um, plot driven kind of uh, page turning pace for the reader so that the reader has trouble putting the book down. And so she suggested, my editor suggested interweaving the chapters uh, from a present to past uh, much more frequently. And it became an alternating deal. Uh, so there was a little bit of juggling with the story in order to get those to kind of fit and interlock in that uh, one in the present, one in the past kind of way. Um, and I think it it worked out really well. It was a good edit. Um, but yeah, you you struggle with that a little bit as you're dealing with that because there were changes that needed to be made to the book to kind of accommodate that sense of pacing, sections that happened um needed to be moved around a little bit um and it's it's really good when you you sort of tinker with um pacing under the hood like that because it can really make the story run a lot smoother and a lot um more efficiently and i think it does i think it i think it works pretty well um but yeah it was it was tricky there were lots of notes lots of um lots of flipping back and forth between trying to remember where things should fit and shouldn't fit and so yeah yeah not a uh it was not an easy book to pace i'll put it that way well you did a great job with it and it moves just so briskly and so wonderfully that not only does it move well but you keep the reader moving right through to the next chapter and wanting to keep going and keep moving forward it's it's really terrific so you did a great job with it i wanted to talk about the the dual timelines a little bit more um in the, in the 1980s setting in, in 1988 1989 we're introduced to nelly gardner and her 11 year old son max uh, unfortunately, Nellie is in an abusive marriage with a husband, Wade, who is a, an academic who has a pretty violent temper and a bunch of other, of other issues that make him really a, a surly person to be around. But I wanted to go back to the to the first timeline, uh, which is set in the late 19-teens, early 1920s with uh, Nellie's grandfather, August Redfern. And he lives in a place and occupies uh, a house, a mansion on a place called Redfern Hill. If the reader walks up to Redfern Hill, or if we were with these characters walking up to Redfern Hill uh, in that 1920s environment, what would we notice? What what would we uh, see in that setting if we got to Redfern Hill? Well, I think in the 1920s, you would see a busy place. I mean, you would see a place of industry. You would see a place that um, had... Uh, a lot of trails worn through the woods that was that were not overgrown that were very managed and very controlled through through burns and 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 things like that you know uh, forestry management um because in the 1920s redfern hill was a home to august redfern and his wife euphemia but it was also the location of their turpentine mill and their their business the empire that 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 uh redfern established in 1917 so it would feel, I guess, like a very busy place, even though it would be isolated and sort of set out on this this giant thousand acre spread. Um, 
but there would be lots of people, lots of workers. There would be the sound of um, uh, machinery. Uh, and so, yeah. And then if you move ahead to when Nellie and Max inherit Redfern Hill and they inherit the old rundown house and the the woods behind it and all of that, what has happened since uh, August has, has died and now that that has become inherited to them, what does Redfern Hill look like now in, in the present time in your story? Uh, a ruin, pretty much, I think. Um, silence would be the first thing. Uh, maybe the sound of, of wind in the pine trees, pine trees creaking against each other. Um, because I think in the opening of the book, Nellie and Max actually are through a series of, of, uh, unfortunate circumstances that happen in the, in the early pages of the book for them, they're actually forced to walk the last mile or so of the, the road that leads to Redfern Hill. And they do so after dark at night. And so it's a pretty spooky place actually to come upon, um, when no one is inhabiting it. And it's been essentially a dead place for about 15, 20 years at that point. Very good. Very good. One of the things that we we notice as we uh, follow Nellie and Max as they continue to get to know this this new estate uh, that they have inherited and, and, and Redfern Hill and all the property around it is some uh, some interesting things uh, start to happen. Um, they start to see, uh, you know, you describe the shadowy kitchen in the house so well. Um you know, there is, uh, uh, you know, the narrow set of steps that climb up to the second floor, but then there's really just some, some strange things that happen as well. A lot of, uh, there's a bear that won't stay dead, for example, in the story. Um, there's scratching that they can hear in the walls um, as mm -hmm. they get to know the house. And that's really when Max starts to realize, hmm, something's going on here that's not not quite right. And one of the things I really liked about all of that is the the anticipation of not knowing exactly what was making those sounds or where those sounds were coming from or why the bear wouldn't stay dead uh, in some ways was more terrifying than I think if the bear had, you know, jumped through a window and come after them early on uh, in the story. And I wanted to ask you, uh, as a writer writing horror, is, is the unknowing of exactly what it is sort of it's kind of the the steven spielberg jaws effect where we don't see the shark until late in the movie because we're in our minds trying to figure out uh just how bad and how big and how awful this thing is is did you use kind of something similar when you're writing some of those clues that uh that there were some terrible things uh, happening and going to happen uh in the story but but it's not it's not violent necessarily right at the beginning did, was that something that you wanted to do to kind of really heighten up the psychological suspense for the reader yeah, I um I favor an approach when I'm writing a book that um for better or worse, I think if you read too many good read reviews, goodreads reviews of your work, which I try not to do. Um but I do favor an approach that's much slower in terms of pacing, um more set up, more uh of a kind of languid approach to um spending time with characters before things go bonkers. And I think that um, that point in the story is always critical. There's always a moment where, um, you know, deep into the story, things have to have to peak and, and the, the coaster starts downhill. But um, yeah, I like a long setup. I like a slow burn. And I think that um, in particular with this story, when you're dealing with characters who are in coming into a place coming out of trouble into a place that's supposed to be a sanctuary and a refuge for them. Um, Nellie and her son, 
you have to spend time in that place with those characters and see it the way they're seeing it. And so you, you have this opportunity in this book to actually put those two characters and the reader in the same situation where they're all experiencing this place for the first time in a way um, together. And so that's immersive to me that that's engaging for the reader and you have to be careful. You, you spend too much time doing that and you're going to lose the reader, you know, obviously with, with uh, repetition and, and, and the slowness can be exhausting. <laughs> so I try to try to find that balance. Yeah. Very good. I want to ask you about one character that shows up kind of, kind of midway through the story as, as much as uh, we like to follow and we do follow Nellie and Max. And as they're in uh, discovering a Redfern Hill and the mansion and really what's going on here, uh, there are some other more humanistic characters that pop up. One of them is uh, Lonnie who was um, coming in and he's the uh, great nephew of uh, George Baxter. And he comes in and says, this property is mine. This is in my birthright. You got it and took it uh, and it belongs to me. Talk to us a little bit about, about his character and, and what he's up to and the reaction that kind of Nellie and Max have when he shows up on the scene. Well, Lonnie is, you know, um, <laughs> I think Nellie refers to him in her mind when she first really encounters him as small town mean that's the way she thinks of him. And and Lonnie is this type of character that that if you're from a small town and you've had any hand in city politics, city government, running of a school, my, my dad was a high school principal and um, uh, later a superintendent. And so there was a there was a guy that served on the school board, total ass uh that that <laughs> Lonnie like has deep roots in uh some people I knew in my small community that I grew up in uh they're these sort of bombastic uh blowhards who think they know how things should be run and they're going to put themselves into these positions of power no matter what to try and make sure that things happen the way they want them to happen and with that uh, comes this sense of entitlement comes this sense of you know, I'm a, I'm a member of a family that's always been here. I'm a white male. I own this place. I run this place. Um, these are my people here that I'm looking out for. And so Lonnie has a lot of that going on. And, and also, I think there was a review of the book that I really liked um, what someone said about Lonnie. <laughs> Lonnie's also just a kind of creepy stalker more than he's anything else. Um, he's not so much, he's this sort of ex-high school football player um who's kind of gone to seed a little bit but he's still got a bit of that old menace in him when he when he wants to channel it and i i just really like the idea that for all of his pretensions to owning uh what he feels is his birthright that when it boils down to it lonnie is just kind of a a creepy stalker who follows nelly around because he wants what she has and uh he's pulling out all the stops i guess to try and get it in the narrative Mm -hmm, very good. And behind the house are the trees and kind of the wooded areas behind Redfern Hill. And there's uh, some some explanation in, in writing about, you know, the hills being cleared out, as you were talking about the, the turpentine factory and and the industry that was there back when uh, uh, when Redfern Hill was really doing well back in the 1920s. But uh, there was a line I highlighted uh, that Redfern's wife said or a phrase that she said, and I want to ask you about it and, and pardon my French here. But she she kind of has a moment where she blames all of the family's suffering on the the quote goddamn trees, and uh, she she mentions that. Um, 
And those trees, I think, symbolically mean so many different things. Can you talk about the symbolism? I don't want to put you on the spot and make you give away too much of the story, but the symbolism of those trees, and it seems like those trees, as time has gone on, mean different things uh, for for the family, for the um, spirits, for lack of a better word, that inhabit the property. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, kind of the, symb- the symbolic meaning of those trees that are behind uh, Redfern Hill there and behind the house? Sure. Um, well, they operate on two levels, I think, really. I mean, there's the there's a very personal thing that this, the trees kind of represent to Nellie at one point in the story. Uh, but when you, I mean, I can come back to that, but I think in terms of the history of Georgia and the South, um, the trees are kind of the original inhabitants of the land. I mean, the trees were here before um anybody else was and the trees in terms of history these long leaf pine trees uh they were here since i believe the end of the the pleistocene era like i'm i'm not sure how they got here there's a lot of different conversation in in sort of scholarly and scientific circles about whether the seeds were blown north from mexico or whatever northeast um, but, but yeah, they, at some point in the sandy coastal region of Georgia, all of these pine trees started growing along rivers and you had these whole forests of these gigantic longleaf pine trees. Um, and they're pine trees that are sturdy and stout and they thrive in fire, uh, fire actually like helps strengthen them. And so they're these pieces of the land that uh are immediately vulnerable despite their strength when um white settlers come into the picture and in the um one of the things that attracted me to this whole story was the idea of the trees and this history here in georgia that they kind of tie into with um dodge county and the land that's about 30 miles to the southeast of um here where we live in, in bleckley county um, there was this whole land war that happened between uh, poor white settlers and rich white northern timber barons who, after the Civil War, came down from Connecticut, New York and and bought up or kind of basically stole um, a lot of land from people who were farming it and living here, who, of course, had, you know, taken the land uh, in turn from indigenous people. I think it was the Creek Indians had tribal hunting grounds along um, this river region of Georgia. Um, but anyway, uh, so the trees have been here a long time. White people come in, they cut them down, they log them, they temp- they use them uh, for lumber. And into this setting, I just wanted to bring like this, this character who was an outsider to the South who wanted to use the trees, but not in that way. And so he marries into this lumber family. This is August Redfern. And starts this turpentine industry. Well, turpentining as a as an industry was also part of um, the history of this region as well, in terms of industry in the forest and capitalism and all that. And uh, turpentining is, if if done, um, even if done properly, but certainly if um, done improperly, is can be devastating to a forest. And um, that's sort of where we get to the personal aspect of it when. When Nellie first encounters these trees as a young girl, they're still alive. They're still thriving, some of them. Uh, but when she returns to this place, to her grandfather's estate that she's inherited, uh, she finds that the pine trees have all withered and died. 
And so there's this wonderful symbolism for her personally in the pine trees themselves, which are these scarred, uh, battered things that men have um, exploited. And I think there's a kinship she feels with them. And certainly uh, one of the things I thought was really beautiful about pines and melancholy too, is that the pine trees, of course, to heal themselves when they've been damaged and hacked into and bled is that they bleed the sap that covers over and, and, and so, uh, and heals essentially regenerates the trees, but, um, they can only do that so much. And I think when Nellie finds them in 1989, they've, they've done it to the point where they can't do it anymore. And so there, there's this idea that, um, they just haven't been able to heal themselves. And she finds a kinship with that, you know, on the personal level. Very good. The title of the book we're talking about today on Now Appalachia is called The Hollow Kind. Our guest is author Andy Davidson. And Andy, we'll come back to the book uh, in just a second. But I wanted to ask you, uh, as a horror writer, are there any horror writers or filmmakers or directors or producers that inspire you or whose work that you think is just really uh, a great example of that kind of genre of work? Oh yeah, sure. Tons of people. Um, uh, in terms of books, you know, I, I read a lot of contemporary people, people that I've had the good fortune to meet. Uh, and some of them I actually can call friends. Um, I think, uh, the work of Paul Tremblay is pretty great. Uh, Stephen Graham Jones is maybe my favorite living author. Um, and I think people who are kind of adjacent to the horror genre, of course, you know, um, I always try to kind of avoid talking about Stephen King because every horror writer talks about Stephen King. And, and most <laughs> of us want to avoid talking about Stephen King because let's face it. Um, uh, everybody talk, everybody knows about Stephen King, but um, uh, there are other writers who are kind of adjacent to horror who, who put their feet into that genre a little bit and, and peripheral genres like the Southern Gothic or the Gothic. And it's people like Cormac McCarthy Um Flannery O'Connor, uh, even, you know, going way back to people like Faulkner. And I, you know, I, I don't read Faulkner every week, but every, every year or so I try to read a Faulkner novel, go back to him, which is like going back to the well along with you know, McCarthy for me, uh, in terms of movies. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of like, I oh gosh, I mean, John Carpenter, um, I would say two or three of his films are among some of my favorite movies ever. Um, there's uh trying to think like a jaws is is you mentioned that already and that was a huge in, influence on this novel alone and, um so yeah i mean uh, my wife and i are both uh big horror fans horror readers horror watchers and so we're we're into pretty much everything i always feel like that there's two genres that would be really difficult to write because i feel like everybody I've heard a lot of authors, you know, novice authors say that they they can do this, but I feel like few can do it well. And, and the genres are humor and horror, both H's. I mean, I, I feel like that th those are two genres that um, people can, people are either really great at writing that genre or that they struggle mightily. What do you think are, are the challenges of, of of writing in that genre, of writing in horror, given that, um, you know, there are movies and there's now 
you know, uh, series on FX and Hulu, like American Horror Story, and there's books, and there's all these different things out here. Some graphic novels even have a lot of uh, of horror elements into them, uh, or woven into them. What what is the challenge for you in, in writing in that genre and writing a compelling story that um, not only is compelling but where it feels like you haven't done something that's been done before. It seems like that would be a lot easier easier said than done. What, what are some challenges that you feel like uh, that you've experienced or just challenges of writing in that genre in general? Well, I think you kind of hit it on the head when you said that uh, there's this idea of like trying to do things that haven't been done before. I think horror, firstly, I mean, I should sort of issue a disclaimer and say that there there is a genre or subgenre and a flavor of horror for almost every reader and every taste. I mean, from from splatter punk to body horror to folk horror to, and we're talking film and books here. Um, you know, so there's a lot of different types of horror that you can write as a writer. Um, for me, my approach to each book that I've written has been to take a trope, to take a commonly uh, explored trope and try to do something new with it. To, to, to do something basically that hasn't been done before with it and you know it's it that can be a tricky line to walk because you you have to be careful not to repeat other people's good ideas as well as bad ideas and and certainly um i think one of the biggest challenges of writing horror for me personally has been audience expectation reader expectation so you write a book that you want to read. That's my approach as a writer. I write the book I want to read, but I think what I want to read is not what every horror reader wants to read. And so when a book gets marketed and put out into the world as a horror novel, everybody has a different idea what that word is, what that, what that word means. And so you can get readers that react pretty viscerally to your work and say, this is boring. This is too slow. There's nothing scary about this at all. And you have other readers who say, well, this is really like good at building atmosphere. This is really good at, at, at getting, imparting a sense of dread um, in the narrative. So I think that's one of the things that I find to be the most challenging to get right is uh, reaching the right readers. You know, that's just hard to do in horror. Uh, but when you do reach them and people talk about your work and how much they enjoy it, that's really really rewarding so i you know i i'm not complaining too much the title of the book is the hollow kind our guest is andy davidson today it's his brand new book he's also uh, the author of two other books the valley of the sun and the boatman's daughter which was listed among npr's best books of 2020 and he's a bram stoker award nominated author and i want to go back to the book um one word i kept writing down as i was reading as as both these dual timelines that we've been talking about was unfolding was um, I wrote down two words, and they may not be connected exactly right, but I wrote down greed and I wrote down ambition. And I feel like that a lot of what we see as a theme in your work is this idea of ambition. And even going back uh, to Redfern Hill's early days, you know, even going back to uh, August Redfern all the way to the present, everybody is is using the land. And you kind of touched on this with the turpentine a moment ago. Everybody's got ambition and ambitious goals and ambitious reasons for being at, at Redfern Hill. And I just feel like that 
uh, it, it, that's something that that sort of plagues uh, really the the entire family through the generations. And then we talked about Lonnie and his ambitions for the for the land. He just wants it because he feels like it belongs to him. What about that theme of of ambition and greed? And it seems like everybody kind of has a different slice of those terms, but it really uh, impacts a lot of what happens in the story. Can you comment on that for a little bit? Uh, talk about that as as a theme that runs through your story. Sure. Um, I think it's a theme that runs through the narrative, um, the stories of the white men in the book. I think power, greed, ambition, establishing yourself, uh, there are all these aspects of the American dream for white men uh, in the narrative. Um, So by contrast, um, Nellie has no particular greed about her. Uh, she wants a place for sh- for herself and her son to be at home and be at peace. Um, and so that that dichotomy was always like there uh, for sure. I think early on when the lawyer uh, Meadows is trying to kind of talk to Nellie about the property and it's like he's telling her, look, this is a lot of acreage. This is a lot of land. You're going to have a lot of trouble managing this. It's going to cost you just to kick, make the house livable. You're going to run through your inheritance. It's all about money. It's all about what you could get out of it. And uh, Nellie's not interested in that. She's not interested in how much she can sell it for. Um, and I think one of the one of the fun sort of um, flips uh, in the book is that uh, when Wade enters the picture, uh lonnie baxter sort of tries to use wade uh nelly's husband as this tool as this implement to get what he wants and he offers him money and uh wade is uh in a way uh uh he's not having it he is much more interested in what he wants uh in terms of his family and his wife and his son and it's still a kind of greed but that monetary greed kind of goes out the window. And I think ultimately that's one of the bottom lines in the book is that um, there are various levels of greed and um, the more frightening levels are the ones that have to do with uh, possession of people, possession of, of uh, individuals and their souls, as opposed to lo- uh, as opposed to money and land. So, yeah. And that, that thread kind of runs through, as a kind of male female contrast too with um with uh, august redfern and his wife euphemia euphemia sees august not really managing things correctly and she has better ideas and those ideas are not so much in how we can make money off the land but in how she can continue to protect her family um so yeah there's there's different kinds of greed in the book in that way so this is your third book, The Hollow Kind, following um, The Valley of the Sun and The Valley of the Sun and The Boatman's Daughter. So what are you working on next? What are you thinking about? Are you drafting something new? Where are you in the process of a new work? What's coming up next for you? I've got a manuscript for a book that um, I'm working on that I've been working on for several years now. So it's it's still in the I mean, it's out, it's been outlined about four times, <laughs> you know, I, I keep, I keep changing it. Um, but I want to get it right. You know, like it's that, it's that book that you just want to get right. And it's a, it's a Western novel set in the late 1800s in, in Colorado. And um, 
So it's kind of out of my wheelhouse a little bit in terms of the South in, in the American South, but it's going back to sort of what I loved about writing in the Valley of the Sun in West Texas, which was the West. And, uh, and I'm, I'm playing around with a different monster trope in this one. So kind of trying to do something fun with werewolves. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. So uh, in our final moments with you today, Andy, if anyone wants to get in contact with you and reach out to you to find out more about not only the hollow kind, but uh, your first two books uh, in the Valley of the sun and the boatman's daughter, uh, how can they stay in contact with you or reach out to you first of all? And then where can they get copies of the hollow kind? Sure. Uh, so I've got my website, theandydavidson.com, and I've got tons of links and info there about the various books. And there's a contact submission uh, form there that you can fill out and get in touch with me by email if you want. Uh, I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. I'm on Twitter until Twitter, you know, disintegrates into a flaming <laughs> uh, pile of rubble. Uh, I'll be there until the end, probably, because I'm I'm getting old and I don't want to try to learn new ways to do things. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm there. Um, the Hollow Kind is available on almost any platform you want to get. If you want to get a signed copy of it, um, I believe there are some stores that have some poison pin in Scottsdale, Arizona, Galveston Bookshop in Galveston, Texas. Um, I'm trying to think Lemuria Books, L-E-M-U-R-I-A. That's in Jackson, Mississippi. They all have signed copies available. Um, yep. Excellent. Andy Davidson has been our guest on this episode of Now Appalachia. We've been talking to him about his outstanding brand new book. It's called The Hollow Kind. And if you like horror, if you like thrillers and, and mysteries and you like supernatural elements, and if you like a story about uh, generations uh, of a family that are suffering from a variety of traumas of different kinds, uh, this is the book for you. Andy, it's terrific read. Really, really enjoyed it. I think it's just going to be a, a book that everybody should add to their to be red pile as they close out 2022 and head into 2023. And we appreciate you coming on now Appalachia to talk about it. Thanks so much. Thank you. That, that means a lot. And I'm happy to have been here. This is fun. We want to take a moment as we finish up this episode of now Appalachia to give a special shout out and a thanks to our executive producer, Pam Stack for all the offsite and behind the scenes support she provides uh, to this podcast and all the other podcasts that you hear on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We really could not do it without her, and we appreciate all the work that she does to make these podcasts possible. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Well, that is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time, and in the meantime, stay well, and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.